Good morning. As John said, my name is Mitchell Cruitt. I'm one of the pastoral apprentices here at EBF. And if you are a guest with us, uh, I am so glad that you're here. Right now, we're going to be continuing our worship by hearing from God's Word as found in the Bible. And we'll be continuing our sermon series through 1 Samuel, following the story of King Saul's conflict with David. So this morning we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 17, or sorry, 18, verses 17 through 30. And as you open up to 1 Samuel chapter 18, I'd like to tell you a short story about a 16th century monk, priest, professor, and eventual pastor. Uh, Martin Luther was returning to his university uh, one day when a lightning storm came up. He nearly died in the storm, and so he calls out to God, uh, asking that God would rescue him. And if he did, he would enter a monastery for the rest of his life. So God did deliver him, and so he began to enter into this Augustinian monastery, but he took a one-year probationary period, just to test and see if monastic life was for him. Well, over the course of that year, he realized, you know what, I really could be a monk. I think this will work for me. So at the end of that year, he took on a lifelong vow as a monk. Well, later in life, Luther would reflect back on that experience and say that the devil is very quiet during the first year in the monastery. And what he meant by that is shortly after taking on those monastic vows, he began to be assaulted by what he could only call infectum. I know that's a, a bizarre word, but it's a German word that he used to describe assaults by the devil to destroy men. You see, Luther found himself tormented day and night by the fear of standing before a holy God. And he felt that the devil frequently would bring up his shortcomings, accusing him over and over. So in response, Luther would fast three times a day, um, or sorry, fast for up to three days, not eating anything, not drinking anything. He would stay up all night praying more than he was required to. He would confess daily. And on one, conf- on one day, he confessed to his abbot, Johann van Staupitz, for six hours straight. Can you imagine how van Staupitz would feel? Well, he was so frustrated by Luther's confessions. One time he told Luther, if you expect Christ to forgive you, Come in with something to forgive. Murder, blasphemy, adultery. How is that for pastoral counsel? Now, to be fair, Van Stalpitz also pointed Luther to the scriptures. And God used this time as Luther would read over the scriptures to bring him to a rediscovery of the gospel of grace. And he realized through that that he could stand before God not because of his fasting, prayers, confessions, or vigils, but because of the grace found in Jesus Christ. Yet even after he had come to terms with how he could stand before a holy God, he was still tormented year after year, day after day, by darkness, despair, depression. And throughout his life, he would continue to attribute this darkness and despair to assaults from the devil. And the question I would like to ask this morning, and I think our text answers for us, is 
What should Luther have hoped for in the midst of those assaults? What should he have looked to? And surely we can relate to Luther's experience, even if we haven't suffered deep bouts of depression and despair. In the midst of a broken world where Satan directs suffering to devastate and destroy us, what should we hope for? When we're persecuted for our faith, What should we hope for? When abused or abandoned, what should we hope for? I think this is the question that 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 17 through 30 answers. In order to find what we should hope for, we have to answer three more questions. We have to ask, what does this story teach What does this story teach in light of the cross of Christ? And how does this story shape our hope? So again, the three questions. What does this story teach? What does this story teach in light of the cross of Christ? And how does this story shape our hope? But before we look to God's word, would you um, please pray with me for God's help? God, our Father, we are blind apart from your help to read and understand your word. So would you give us eyes to see your word and ears to hear your word? Would you help us to think your thoughts and to hope after the things you would have us hope for? Lord, please give us worshipful hearts as we hear and respond to your word. Amen. So what does 1 Samuel 18, 17 through 30 teach? Before we look at the text, let's remember a little bit of the context. You know, several weeks ago now, in chapter 15, we saw that God rejected King Saul as king because he had been disobedient. And then in chapter 16, he calls Samuel to anoint David as a replacement for Saul as king. Then in chapter 17, David defeats Goliath and so gains more and more reputation And then last week in chapter 18, verses 1 through 16, we saw that Saul becomes more and more jealous of David's reputation and even attempted to murder him. But somehow, David escaped Saul's murderous rage. This week, we're going to continue watching that tension unfold. So let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 17. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter Mirab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David. She was given to Adriel, the Mahalathite, for a wife. Well, at first glance, it seems that Saul has kind of changed his attitude towards David. He does offer his daughter Merab as a wife, after all. But appearances can be deceiving. Did you notice that Saul gave David a condition for marrying his daughter? Just a chapter earlier... He had promised that any man who could defeat Goliath would be free to marry his daughter. 
And David had miraculously defeated Goliath. He had earned the right to marry Merab. Yet now, Saul was saying, only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. Saul was trying to suggest even that he was ultimately concerned for God's glory, making the condition that David fight the Lord's battles. Yet even if it wasn't clear to David, the narrator makes it totally clear to us. Saul's motives are anything but pure. Saul intends evil for David. Look again in verse 17. Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. Saul intends evil for David, but now he's just changed his tactics. Instead of trying to murder David himself, he's hoping the Philistines will do it for him. And whether or not David knows of those ulterior intentions, he responds to Saul's suggestion with respect and humility, recognizing how great a privilege it would be to be a part of the king's royal family. But the next thing we know is in verse 19, rather than giving Merab to David as a wife, Saul gives her to Adriel the Maholothite. And by drawing attention to the fact that Adriel was a Maholothite, the narrator is pointing to Adriel's origins and subtly suggesting that Saul is motivated by political intentions. He's hoping to get himself a political ally to secure his throne as he continues to fear losing it. One commentator even said that Saul is more concerned about his personal position than about the nation's security. He's just trying to hold on for dear life to what God has torn from him. However, one thing backfires on Saul. With this political alliance, his plot to get rid of David has unfolded. Like, he can't get David to fight the Philistines anymore. So let's look to see what he'll do next. Look with me in verse 20. Now Saul's daughter Michael loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servant spoke those words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I'm a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus you shall say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Well, as soon as Saul finds out that his daughter Michael loved David, Saul comes up with another plan as quick as he can. In fact, when Saul hears that Michael loved David, The thing pleased him. But it's not because he's happy for Michael and David. It's because he's just found another opportunity to ensnare David. So Saul again tries to persuade David to seek his daughter's hand in marriage. 
Saul tells David he desires him to become his son-in-law, and then he even sent his servants to assure him, regardless of everything that's just happened, my murdering you, my giving your wife away to somebody else, I really do still want you to be my son-in-law. Well, and these servants then report back David's words. David replies in verse 23, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am poor and have no reputation? Again, David is recognizing the great privilege it would be to marry the daughter of a king and become part of the royal family. Yet he's also raising another concern. Part of the reason it would be such a great thing for him to marry the daughter of a king is because he was poor and had no reputation. And in those days, becoming a son-in-law or a bridegroom involved paying a bride price to the bride's father. And the price of that bride price could vary depending on village to village and the family's income. And so what David is suggesting here is that he would not be able to afford the bride price of a king. It would be too expensive. Yet it was also the father's prerogative to set that bride price. So when the servants report David's words to Saul, Saul jumps at the opportunity to ensnare David once again. And he offers a bride price bride price that would be no harder for a poor man than for a rich man to do. Saul asked only for a hundred foreskins of Philistines, a price that David would only be able to acquire by risking his life. And Saul hopes that this risk will actually cost David his life. Again and again, Saul is intending evil for David As the passage says in verse 25, Saul thought to make David fall by the hands of the Philistines. Even still, when Saul offers David an opportunity to marry Michael and retain his honor, David jumps at the opportunity as well. It pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. And this pleased David not only because it would bring him into the king's family and the royal family, but he was pleased because it would provide a natural avenue for God to fulfill his promise to make David king. But this phrase is also significant for another reason. It it pleased David well is striking because in the original Hebrew text, these are the exact word-for-word expression used to describe how Saul felt when he saw that Michael loved David. You see, just as it was pleasing to Saul that he could use marriage to Michael as a way to destroy David, it was pleasing to David that he could marry Michael and be one step closer to receiving God's promises. So we have two men who have their own plans, but what is going to make the difference between which plans prosper and which plans fail? So let's look at the end of verse 26 to find out. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michael for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the princes of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, 
David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. So David sets out before the time has even expired and exceeds Saul's expectations. He kills 200 Philistines, comes back, brings the price, and Saul actually follows through this time. He gives Michael to David as a wife. But Saul also becomes increasingly more afraid. But why? And why was it that David succeeded while Saul's evil intentions failed? Well, verse 28 tells us, Saul finally realized that the Lord was with David. And that's what made all the difference. David didn't just succeed against Goliath and succeed in paying the bride price, but he had success as often as the Philistines came out, defeating them more often than anyone else. And what's the difference? The Lord was with David. So what does this story teach? I think this story teaches that what the enemy intends for evil, God turns for the good of his anointed servants. Remember, back in chapter 16, David had been anointed by Samuel, which designated him as God's chosen king, God's chosen servant for the people. Now in chapter 18, Saul has become David's enemy and intended evil for him time and time again. Yet here, what Saul intended for evil, God turned for the good of David because God was with him. So when Saul, David's enemy, intended evil against David, God turned it for the good of his anointed servant, David. And this is not just true for David, but throughout the scriptures, we see this pattern unfold that what the enemy intends for evil, God turns for the good of his anointed servants. We can see this principle through the life of David, Joseph, Job, and many others. But who are God's anointed servants today? If you haven't noticed, we don't really anoint people anymore in some special ceremony designating them as priests and kings. So what is it today that would make someone an anointed servant? Well, I think in order to understand who God's anointed servants are, we now have to understand what this story teaches in light of the cross of Christ. So let's now turn to answer our second question. What does this story teach in light of the cross of Christ? I think the cross of Christ clarifies three aspects of this principle, that what the enemy intends for evil, God turns for the good of his anointed servants. First, the cross clarifies the reason for our hope today. Second, the cross of Christ clarifies whom the hope is for. And third, the cross of clarifies when one can expect the hope to be fulfilled. So the cross of Christ clarifies the reason for the hope today, who this promise is for, and when one can expect this hope to be fulfilled. So first, the cross of Christ gives confidence that one can place their hope in the reality that what the enemy intends for evil God will turn for the good of his anointed servants because the cross of Christ is the ultimate example of this. The title Christ is a Greek translation of a Hebrew word, a a Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed one. So when Jesus' earliest followers were calling him the Christ, they were simply acknowledging that Jesus was God's anointed servant to usher in the kingdom of God. Yet, 
Satan intended the most horrific evil against this Messiah. As we heard last week, he stirred up the crowds to cry, crucify him, crucify him. And Jesus was crucified. But even more so, God's full wrath was born on Jesus on the cross for our sins. Yet what Satan intended for evil, God turned for the good, not only of his anointed servant Jesus, but for the whole world. If God could turn even the evil of the cross into good for his anointed servant and the whole world, then what the enemy intends for evil today, God will turn for the good of his anointed servants. Second, the cross of Christ clarifies who can have this ultimate hope. And this has to do with how God turned the evil of the cross to the good of the whole world. See, God used Jesus' death on the cross as a way to redeem a people for himself. And 1 Peter 2.9 calls this people a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. And as in the Old Testament, priests and kings were anointed, so too this people would be God's anointed servants. It is this people that in the midst of suffering have hope. But how does one become a part of this people, this royal priesthood? Well, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, Peter also gives us a clarification for that. So if you want to flip there, you are more than welcome to, but I'll go ahead and start reading now. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. See, because Jesus bore God's wrath for our sins and through his resurrection from the dead defeated the sting of sin, which is death, all those who receive God's mercy through faith in Jesus are born again to a living hope. And those people can look forward to a salvation that is waiting to be revealed in the last time. So who are God's anointed servants? God's anointed servants are those who have received God's mercy through faith in Christ's work on the cross. It is these people who can place their hope in the reality of, that what the enemy intends for evil, God turns for the good of his anointed servants. And what I'm about to say, I know is a hard word, but I have to make this absolutely clear. If you're not following Jesus, if you have not placed your faith in the work he has accomplished in his death and resurrection, according to God's word, you can't have hope in the midst of suffering, there is not a hope available to you. But there is still a hope. If you would repent of your sins and trust in Jesus, God will show mercy on you and include you in his people, and he will give you hope, not just in the midst of suffering, but for all eternity. So my friends, I would strongly encourage you, please consider the work that Christ has done for you and receive through faith in Jesus the hope 
that can only be found in Christ. So finally, the cross of Christ clarifies when his anointed servants can expect this hope to be fulfilled. So although what the enemy intends for evil will be turned for good, it may not be immediate and it may not even happen in this life. If we continue reading in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, Peter says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter is suggesting that part of the good that we can expect in this life as we face suffering is that our faith would be grown and stretched, that our character would be developed so that when Jesus finally returns, our suffering might be to his praise, glory, and honor. And this is why as Christians, our great hope is that Jesus is coming back. Because on that day, every evil will be undone. And everything we have suffered will be accounted for. So what does this story teach in light of the cross of Christ? First, since God turned the greatest evil Christ's death on the cross into good, not just for his anointed servant, but for the whole world, we can be confident today that what the enemy intends for evil, God will turn for the good of his anointed servants. Second, today God's anointed servants are those who have received God's mercy through faith in Jesus. And through trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection as their hope, they can have hope in the midst of suffering. And finally, a day is coming when Jesus will return and God will turn every evil for the good of his anointed servants. But until that day, his servants will have to wait with eager anticipation for Christ's return. So we've answered, what does this story teach? And what does this story teach in light of the cross of Christ? But how does this story shape our hope? I think this story shapes the hope of two kinds of sufferers. Those who are persecuted for their faith and those who suffer because we live in a fallen world. First, to you who, like David, have been persecuted as God's anointed servants, you can take great hope that whatever your enemies and those opposing you are intending against you, God will use for your good. And some of you, when you hear me talk about persecution, you immediately think of the executions that have gone in the Middle East or the underground church in China that has been persecuted for years upon years. And certainly God has used that persecution for good. An early church father, Tertullian, said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And throughout church history, as people have been willing to live and die for their faith, as people have looked in on that and seen people willing to shed their blood, untold numbers of people have come to faith in Jesus. God certainly has used that for good. But I think persecution may be a little bit closer to home than we might think. Well, many of you will never face this kind of physical persecution, 
many of you will face a more subtle form of persecution. Some of you, as you faithfully work your jobs and share your faith with your coworkers, you're going to be ostracized for your narrow-mindedness. You'll be called a bigot or even things worse. One day you may even lose your job for being so convinced that people need to know about the mercy of Jesus Christ. But it's worth it. Because Jesus is coming back and we have hope because of that. He will restore all things and make all things right, even if you don't know how to make it through that situation. We have hope. And college students, I know some of you, as you have become Christians, your families have opposed you every step of the way. Whether it be to get involved in a campus ministry, whether it even be to come to this church, to go on mission trips, to go into the ministry. Well, I don't know whether that family relationship will ever be restored, will ever lose tension, or what that will look like. I can assure you that what the enemy is intending for evil, God will turn for your good. And I hope that you can take great heart in the reality that even if your circumstances don't change, a better day is coming and will soon be here in which our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, sets all things right. And secondly, some of you are suffering because our world is broken and fallen. And our enemy, Satan, who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour, wants to use that suffering to your shame and to destroy you. Yet in the midst of your suffering, I hope, I hope that you would be able to take hope in the reality that what the enemy intends for evil, whether that be cancer, abuse, depression, or something else entirely, God will turn that evil for your good. And here, I'd like to become a little bit more specific and deal specifically with how this could shape the hope of those who have experienced and been exposed to domestic violence and sexual assault. But before I do so, I want to acknowledge I'm wading into deep waters and and areas that could stir up fresh wounds or, or even old hurts. So I realize this might hit close to home. And so do whatever you need to to care for yourself right now. My wife and I will be available after the service to talk with anyone who'd like to process this. Um, And there will be some resources available for you at the welcome table as well if you'd rather not talk to somebody now. But that being said, I want to say a few words about the hope available to those who have been affected by domestic violence or sexual assault. Some of us may only think of the extreme stereotypes when we consider domestic violence or sexual assault. So I want to provide a a broad definition to help give us some understanding. Domestic violence is a pattern of coercive, controlling, or abusive behavior used to gain or maintain power or control over another individual within the context of an intimate relationship. And domestic violence can be very subtle, may not be physical, it may be emotional or spiritual. And so that means for us looking in, it's going to be very hard to see. 
So I want to encourage you, if someone ever comes to share with you a situation that sounds like that, please, knowing how hard it would be for them to share with you, take them at their word, even if you can't see it from the outside looking in. And sexual assault is any type of sexual behavior or contact where consent is not freely given or obtained, and it's done through a variety of coercive or manipulative actions. So a key for sexual assault is that it can be any type of sexual behavior or contact that is unwanted, and not just its more extreme forms. But the key for both of these is that power and control are being used over another individual against their will. So if you have been affected by either of these experiences, the first thing I want to tell you is I'm so sorry. I'm sorry about the pain and the suffering you've experienced. It breaks my heart. I can't imagine the pain that you're experiencing, what you might be thinking or feeling. But if you're thinking that it's your fault, if you think that you're the one to blame, or if you feel so ashamed that you don't think you could ever tell someone, I want you to know this is not the way it's supposed to be. God looks in and grieves, even is angry by what you've experienced. And and please know that as unjust as your experiences are, that God will somehow redeem this. And since God grieves, You don't need to pretend everything's okay. You can feel freedom to be angry, to grieve, because it's not the way it's supposed to be. I think Paul captures the Christian experience of this kind of brokenness well when he talks about brokenness in our world, when he writes in 1 Thessalonians 5.13, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Here, Paul is trying to comfort those who have lost loved ones, another product of the fall. He's trying to give them hope by reminding them that Jesus is coming. And There's two aspects of this that I think will be helpful for those who have been affected by domestic violence or sexual assault. The first is, Paul doesn't prohibit their grieving. He assumes that they're going to grieve the brokenness in their world. You too should feel the freedom to grieve the brokenness of your experience, the suffering that you've experienced. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Secondly, Paul also says a Christian's grieving should be different because they have hope. From our passage this morning, we've seen that one aspect of that hope is that what the enemy intends for evil, God will turn for the good of his anointed servants. And while I don't know exactly what that means for you or what that will look like, even if it's hard to believe, know that someday, somehow, someway, God will redeem it. The other aspect that we've seen in 1 Peter and as the context for 1 Thessalonians, 
is that Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, he's going to set all things right with justice and judgment. He's not going to forget what you've experienced. And so while your pain, I know, is immeasurable and runs deep, please know that God cares. And you have a living hope in the person of Jesus Christ, who's working all things together for the good of those who love him. And he's coming again with justice and judgment. This story shapes our hope in the midst of suffering, because whether it's persecution for our faith or suffering that the enemy intends to use for evil, we can take hope because God will turn that evil for good, either now or on the day when he returns, the day we wait for anticipation when Jesus will set all things right. And this is all the more reason that we should pray that old Christian prayer. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Would you please pray with me? God, our Father, according to your great mercy and grace, you have given us an everlasting hope in the person of Jesus Christ. Our world has been torn apart by the fall. Christians around the world and in America are suffering for their faith and for the cause of Christ. Satan is seeking to devour us through our suffering. And so we ask in the midst of these great tragedies that you would be present with Christians around the world, enabling them to be bold witnesses for the cause of Christ. That you would be present with Christians in this congregation who are facing opposition from friends, family, or coworkers. And give them hope in the midst of uncertainty. And we ask that you too would be a comforting presence to those who are suffering abuse, disease, or matters completely out of their control. In the midst of their suffering, please give them the courage to grieve as you grieve. And please give them the hope found in the gospel that you are coming back and you will make all things right. Come, Lord Jesus, come.